Many years ago, when I was a curate in, uh, up north in inner city Bradford, I walked into uh, a local Indian takeaway after church, one of my Sunday spiritual customs, and I was wearing, which we did in those days, my clerical collar. And uh, the staff were devout Muslims. They wore the traditional jalabiya, the one-piece robe, and kufi, the, the prayer skull cap. And when they saw me all in black uh, with my clerical collar, realizing I was a priest, the manager came out. And as he did, he called to those who were in the kitchen, and they all came out and lined up in front of me. I thought, what's going on here? And they all proceeded to shake my hand. And uh, the manager or owner of this takeaway said to me, let me shake the hand of a righteous man. I looked behind me to see who he was talking about. Well, he was talking about me. Let me shake the hand of a righteous man. And I really was somewhat taken aback. I went there for a chicken shashlik. But here I was being greeted and honored and being described and perceived as a righteous man. And as we spoke, they expressed their concern at the erosion of God in our society. And they said that they just saw in me as someone who was set apart and living his life for God as someone who was righteous. I've never forgotten it. I've often thought about it. Now, our perspectives, our understanding on the nature and character and indeed the means to righteousness is very different. But there was clearly mutual respect between us. But at the heart of the Christian faith is this concept of righteousness. It's a word we find throughout Scripture. We often find it on Jesus' lips, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. But what is righteousness? Righteousness essentially means to be right with God. It means to be all right with God. It means for God to turn to the angels and say, he's all right. He's, in, he's with me. Righteousness that we have as Christians is not based upon what we do, but it's based upon what God has done. It's based upon his gift to us that we receive by faith. And when we trust in Jesus, when we look to him, when we believe in him, when we lean on him, when we give ourselves to him, when we say yes to him, his death and resurrection for us, when we recognize him as Lord and eternal God, and we give him our lives and we want to receive forgiveness from him, we are given his righteousness. We are made right with God. God says, you're all right with me. Everything's all right between you and me. When we turn to our passage, we see Jesus talking about righteousness in a slightly different way here. He says in chapter 6, verse 1, be careful not to do, translated practice, but it's literally the verb to do. Be careful not to do righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Righteousness, 
Right standing with God, being all right with God, declared innocent, acquitted, free, guiltless, sinless, ready and fit for heaven is a gift. But then those who have received that gift of righteousness that is free to those who put faith in Jesus are somehow to do righteousness. It's something that we then do. What we are, what we have received, what we have been given is evidenced and expressed in what we do. Are you with me? So Jesus here says about righteousness that it's to do with giving. Something of the one who is right with God, something of that rightness will be seen in what we do and in how we give. Verse 2, when you give. Verse 3, when you give. Verse 4, your giving. Twice here, Jesus says, when you give, not whether. When. He assumes that the righteous will give, that the righteous will do rightly, and the right doing is giving. Righteousness is God's gift. It's God's gift to our faith that makes us righteous. But then having received that gift from him, we give gifts that demonstrate our righteousness. It's not simply pragmatic. Well, I ought to do it because there are needs. It's it's not dogmatic, I must give it because I'm commanded to give. It actually is a kind of authentic overflow of being right with God. Those who are righteous do right. Those who are righteous give righteously. Okay, let me make a few simple points. Not that simple. Um, Medium. First, the righteous give to honor Jesus. First and foremost, we give to give back. We give to honor. We give to worship. Our giving is actually grateful worship. Putting your hand in the air may may indicate that you're worshiping. Putting your hand in your wallet does indicate that you're worshiping. Giving is worship. In Herod's, Herod the Great's temple, there were 13 giant coffers where people could give. 13 of them. And they were shaped like huge inverted trumpets. And as the currency, as the coins went in, they would make this sort of loud ring. And actually, some might throw them in with a little bit more kind of welly in order to get more of a kind of noise resounding round this trumpet. And then people would hear, and then they would look, and they would think, ooh, get you. You're a righteous man. Look how much money you're putting in. That's the background, I think, to what Jesus is saying here. And he's warning us not to be like the hypocrites who give in order simply to get approval from people, to get honor from them. Literally, and this is where the phrase comes from, to blow their own trumpets. You see, don't don't give to blow your own trumpet. Don't give to make much of you. When we give, we want to make much of him. That's That's why we do it. Those who've been made righteous respond righteously by giving because we 
want to make much of him. And we're kind of looking for ways to do that and to show that and to evidence that. So we give because we're grateful and we give because we want to glorify him. It's nothing to do with us. It's all about him. The royals receive lots of gifts. Uh, I read that Queen Elizabeth has received some amazing things over the years with her royal travels. Here's a list of a few of them. I'd like to see her wear some of them when she does her speech at Christmas. Cowboy boots, that would be good. Lacrosse sticks, sunglasses, a box of snail shells, a grove of maple trees, a dozen tins of tuna, and seven kilograms of prawns. Amazing what you get when you're a royal. Two black beavers from Canada, two young giant turtles from the Seychelles, an elephant from Cameroon, jaguars and sloths or sloths from Brazil, 22 sketches given by Dali, and a miniature, I think this might be a favorite, a miniature copy of the Iron Throne from the series Game of Thrones. How about, I bet she was thrilled. And the queen rightly receives. She has served us faithfully and beautifully, served this nation, served the commonwealth. What a wonderful woman. And she served the Lord. What about Jesus? What, what does he get? The high king of heaven who gives up his very life for us at the cross. What is he getting? What is he getting from us? He gave everything for you. What are you giving for him? Throughout Scripture, we see people giving him things. At his birth, the, the wise men came and gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Valuable, honorable, prophetic gifts to him. At the end of his earthly ministry, nard oil is poured upon him and he receives that and the devotion and the tears of Mary. In his ministry he receives a packed lunch from a boy. But what are we giving him? 35 years ago or so when I fell in love with Tiffany and we got engaged, I thought I got better go and buy her an engagement ring. I took out every penny I had in the bank. Every penny. It wasn't a lot. I was just a poor preacher. And I had 300 quid. It was in the 80s, mid-80s. And I went into a jeweler. I said, it's all I got. I want a ring for that much. I, I've got a bit more nice now. I would have haggled. <laughs> but then I didn't. I just, like, I just want a ring. I never spent that much. And here it is. A ring. Just a little ring. little thing of a diamond. And in subsequent years, I've said to her, babe, let me go and buy you, you know, a bigger diamond as befits, you know, you. And she said, no. I got the lot when you gave me this. This is the measure of your love for me. You gave me everything that you had. She got the lot. That was true. What does our giving say about our response to the Lord? Doing righteous. Those who've received righteousness from God, doing right by Him in worship. What are we going to give? Secondly, the righteous give to meet the needs of the poor. 
Besides the temple's 13 trumpets, there was a 14th. Not just a trumpet, it was a whole room. And in that room, you gave money that went to help the poor. It was called the Chamber of the Silent. And there, gifts were given and directed to children, particularly needy children. In Hebrew, the word righteousness is tzedek. It's interesting that in synagogues then and now, in every synagogue they have an alms box called a tzedakah. Charity and righteousness are the same word in Hebrew. And of course we're made righteous on the basis of our charity from God. But we respond and demonstrate righteousness by our evidencing charity towards others. Jesus takes for granted that his disciples, those who are righteous, will give to the poor. Twice here in this passage, he's talking about righteousness and he's talking about giving alms to the needy. In fact, the word there for alms in Greek is the word, it's a stem, but it's elm. It's from which we actually get our word alms. When you give your alms to the needy, God is watching. He's watching what we give. He's watching how we give. He's looking at why we give. And in the matrix of our giving, there must be something. I'm giving to you, God, because I want this to be given to meet the needs of the poor and the needy, the have-nots. Paul, after his conversion, went up to Jerusalem and met with the apostles. We read about it in Galatians chapter 2. And in recording this conversation, he says, the one thing they asked me to do was to remember the poor. Isn't that interesting? The one thing, the very thing, the underlined thing is we've got to remember the poor. We've got to remember the poor. Paul, you're an apostle. Surely the whole weight of your ministry should be predicated upon preaching the gospel. Yes, and remembering the poor, remembering the poor. And I want to say to you saints who are here tonight and listening online, down the line, you can judge a church on its charity. What's it doing with its money? Where are the poor? Do the poor in any way benefit from the church? I love the fact that in Britain, food banks have been pioneered by the church. I loathe the fact that we live in a nation that needs to have food banks. And we need to pray for wisdom for our government and our economy and all the, the social factors that are involved in, in, in leading to poverty. But I love the fact that church is stuck in. I love the fact that the leading charity for food banks is a Christian charity and they have 1,200 food banks. McDonald's have got 1,300, so we need to you know, invest a bit more, 1,300 outlets for their burgers and what have you. But isn't that wonderful? Isn't it tragic that two million people last year went to a food bank? But the church are there. Why are we giving? Jesus says, when you give to the poor. Remember the poor. The needy have got to be, have got to benefit from what we do. 
And I thank God, and I've learned about it in this church. I've got to be honest, I didn't know a lot about it before I came, but I've learned about it in this church to remember the poor, especially in this church where there's so many people from such privilege, we remember the poor. Isn't it wonderful that throughout lockdown for a year, our ACT team were feeding the poor? I love that. I love the memorial at the back of the church on the left from a minister who died in 1710 and from his will, from his estate, they set aside then a hundred pounds, which was about three years average working man's wages in those days. And the revenue was for what? To clothe the poor. It's in our fabric. We remember the poor. That's why we give. We're honoring God. We're thanking Him. We're remembering the poor. And then thirdly, the righteous give to invest in eternity. Half the giving trumpets in the temple were designated for sacrifice and for worship, giving towards that. The other half were designated for actual fabric to pay for incense and for utensils that were used in sacrifice. It was pragmatic. The giving into these trumpets was giving directed to the ongoing operational costs of the temple. People understood. It's not just going to appear out of thin air. It's got to be paid to be built and pay and the upkeep and so on. The money donated went on blessing God because half of it's devoted to worship and the other half to keeping the thing going, which actually also is about worship. So all dates, what is your giving going to here? Well, it's going to honor God. It's going to remember God the poor. It's going to bring people to faith. It's going to bring people to God. It's going towards equipping people to live lives of fruitfulness and faithfulness to the Lord Jesus, to expanding and extending His kingdom for the glory of God and the good of humankind. Not going to the vicars for their holidays or their cars or out like that. It is go. It's about God, the poor, and the world. And you understand that ministry costs money. A church doesn't run on prayer and thin air. It runs on what we give. And we've already heard we don't get anything from anywhere else. It's up to us. If we don't give, who will? But what really matters is not whether I tithe, how much, and so on. What matters is is your heart captivated by Christ? Are you thankful and grateful for what he's done in your life in giving you righteousness? And is your heart captured by, captured by the idea that you can partner with him in bringing his gospel and his kingdom and his love and power and transformation to society. Because that's why we're here. We're here to worship him, and we're here to bless those who come, but we're here to invest in people who will go out and transform society. In the Holocaust movie, Schindler's List, there's a powerful scene at the end of the film. The 
a true story. An industrialist, Oscar Schindler, spent, made a fortune through the war, but then his heart was seized with compassion for the Jewish workers in his factories. And he wanted to rescue them rather than see them loaded on transport cattle trains and sent to Auschwitz. And so every penny that he made, he used to buy, as it were, buy them out uh, from the system and to buy their freedom. And in a very poignant scene at the end, he's lost everything. He's got nothing. He spent it all saving these people. He's just got a, a golden enamel pin badge. And he's weeping. And he says, I could have got more. If only I had sold this, he said, I could have got more. And then the true character played by Yitzhak Stern says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. 1,100 people who are alive because of you. At the end of the film, we see all of them and their ancestors are still living. Very powerful. And I want to be part of a church, and I want to invest in a church where I know that what goes in will come out towards the gospel going out and lives being transformed. So that down the line there will be people who will say, I came to faith because of you at St. Aldate's. I was, I, I, was got, you know, I was uncertain about which way my life was going, but I came to St. Aldous, I came to a student event, and I came to faith, and my life was put on firm foundations because of St. Aldous. I want to be part of a church like that, that invests in people, that sow something of the kingdom, and that we reap the harvest down the line. And I thank God I've had the privilege to travel in recent years all over the place. And wherever I go, I meet people who say, God met me at St. Aldate's. God, I was, had a letter from a, a, a serious top theologian, world-class name, who talked about being blessed here under Michael Green just the other day. I, I was in New Zealand before lockdown. A speaker there, I met somebody who was saved here in the 1970s. Wherever I've gone, I've met people who've come to faith or grown in the faith or be sent out as leaders in the faith in this church. What a wonderful thing. And we want to continue that. We've got a new rector. God's brought him with vision and plans for the future, but they need investing in, not just prayer, we're not just going to be praying for it, we've got to be paying for it. But it's not for us, it's for the glory of God and for the good of society. I need to finish. The, the righteous give and the Father honors them. Verse 4 says, Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We don't give to get, we have the privilege of getting to give. That's the kingdom way. And God is not an icer. There is some theology out there that, you know, if you put in, you'll get out. And they almost kind of trade on that. That's not what it's about. The righteous person doesn't do it for that. God's not an icer. And yet the Bible promises that if we give, it will be given to us a good measure, pressed down and running over. God will bless us. C.S. Lewis wrote about the unblushing promises of reward 
and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel. It's virtue enough, virtue is reward enough, the virtue of giving. It's enough to give to honor God. That's reward enough. It's enough to give to know that the poor are being helped. That's reward enough. It's enough uh, to give to know that people may be brought to faith or nurtured in the faith, discipled in the faith, and sent out leaders in the faith on the basis of our giving. That, in a sense, is reward enough. And yet God says it's not reward enough because I've got more for you. And God doesn't just want to shake the hands of a righteous woman and a man. He wants to open the door of heaven and say, come you who are blessed. See what is prepared for you before the foundation of the earth.